Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Tonight we are picking up the second half of a section of Paul's prayer. And we'll be looking uh, just tonight at Ephesians chapter 1 verses 19 through 23. I'll read all the way back at verse 15 uh, so you can catch the context. Um, And before we read God's word tonight, let me ask you this question. What should Christians pray for other Christians? It's our second week on that subject. What should Christian parents pray for their children? What should Christian pastors pray for their people? And don't overlook this question. What should Christians pray for themselves? Paul is praying in this passage, and he's telling them what he's praying for, and tonight we'll just focus on the very last petition in which he prays that we would know more and more of God's power for us who believe. Let me invite you to give your attention then to Ephesians chapter 1, picking up the reading. Let's pick that up at verse 16. Hear now the word of God. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above. All rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts tonight. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray tonight that your word would dwell richly in our hearts and that it would shape us to pray because it teaches us to know the surpassing greatness of your power towards us. Help us to understand, help us to begin to experience more and more all that you have in store for us, promised to us, guaranteed to your people. Bless us, speak to us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're speaking a second week then about prayer. Prayer is as natural to Christians as crying is to a baby. The baby's first gasp of breath is like a Christian's first response of faith, crying out to God. 
Prayer is as simple for a Christian as a child calling upon its father. It's not any more complex than that. Prayer is also vital for a Christian. We have a dim view of spiritual things. We see as through a glass darkly. We, We need to see more brightly, more clearly. And God has designed that we should even ask that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that we would know. And know what? Here he finishes with to know this, the power of God that is for us. Oh, friends, it's important that we pray. And Paul is praying big prayers here. Not because he's so fabulous at praying or because he's a great prayer, but because he knows God is big. And we need to learn to do this. He prays to the Father, the glorious Father, he calls him. As John Newton put it, thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such none can ever ask too much. He's praying big prayers here, friends. Bold prayers for their spiritual growth. That God would give them the Holy Spirit so they could know God more and more. And that God would enlighten the eyes of their hearts because it's dim in order to know the hope that he's called them to and the riches they have. And we've covered those things and now the power that God has for us. He wants us to grow in experiencing a sense of God's power at work in us. And so he prays for them. So I I would say this, he not only prays for them, but he tells you what he prays. So don't leap past your understanding of it. He goes on and on at length to describe this power because the power God has for you is in accordance with the power God exercised in Jesus. We need to know about this power. And he doesn't doesn't give some great big theological explanation about how, well, God, of course, is infinite, and therefore he is almighty, or, you know, God is omnipotent, you just need to work out the rest, or, you know, that God is, well, he's the source of all power, or he's supremely powerful, or any of those things. He doesn't doesn't go on a theological treatise. Instead, He speaks of God's power in terms of what has been done by that power in the experience of a man. The man, Christ Jesus. That power that was at work in Jesus, the man, is the power that is at work in you, a human being. That's what he's saying. It's dynamite power, in fact. That's his word for power. We... we, we, Pick it up and call it dynamite. It's actually hyper-dynamite. It's mega-dynamite. It's hyper-mega-dynamite. He piles up all these words to say the surpassing greatness of the dynamite. That's, that's what he's saying here. And so it, he says it's for us who believe. Not people, he says, who have a vision. Not people, he says, who you know, keep certain rules in order to get it. Not people who jump through the right hoops, people who do this or that in order to manipulate God to get it. People who believe, he says. And so we want to think about this power, and I want to do it under three headings. He highlights three things. I want to highlight three things he says about this power that we should pray to know. He says, number one, it's God's power in Jesus over death. Number two, it's God's power in Jesus over the demonic And he says, number three, it's God's power in putting Jesus in dominion over all 
things, three things then, a word about death, a word about the demonic tonight, and a word about dominion. In the first place, go back to our text and notice what he says about this immeasurable, verse 19, immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his might, that he worked in Christ when he did what? When he raised him from the dead. God's power in Jesus over death is God's power for you. Stuart Briscoe tells a story. When he moved to the United States, he says, you know, I had all these people visiting my home. It was really wonderful, all these strangers. And then he realized they all wanted to sell him insurance. So he sat down with one guy who said, look, uh, uh, Mr. Briscoe, um, if something should happen to you, he started to say, and I interrupted him, he says. I, I said, please don't say that. It upsets me. He was a little startled, so he tried again. Uh, But with all due respect, sir, we must be ready if something should happen to us. Don't say that, I insisted. He looked totally bewildered and said, "I, I don't understand what I said to upset you. Then I'll tell you, he replied. It upsets me that you talk about life's only certainty as if it's a mere possibility. Death isn't a possibility, it's a certainty. You don't say if, you say when, whenever death is the subject. Let's not, friends, let's not pretend about death. It's harder to pretend the older you get. Even myself in my 40s now have contemplated death far more in the last two years than in the whole history of my life. The older you get, the more you realize death is unstoppable. And it is a bitter and relentless enemy. The former president, John Quincy Adams, in 1846, he had a stroke. And he began to recover a little bit, so he he returned to Congress, and Daniel Webster came by to visit him. And Daniel Webster says another guy walked in to inquire after the health of John Quincy Adams, to which Adams replied, someone... Uh, to, to which he replied, I inhabit a weak, frail, decayed tenement, battered by the winds and broken in upon by the storms. And from all I can learn, the landlord does not intend to repair. Not in this life. We are all going to face it. If it hasn't started breaking down now, it will And they say that there are only two things actually in life that are certain, death and taxes. But I suppose you could cheat on your taxes. But you can't cheat death. And Paul reminds you that you have a Savior who did not cheat death. He did not run from it. He did not hide from it. In fact, he set his face on it. He ran towards it. He set his face on it towards Jerusalem to go to the cross to die. Why? For you. To conquer death for you. To get into it and then to come out of it and so to slay it, to defeat it as an enemy. Jesus, he says, is risen from the dead. That's the power that is at work in you. The power that raised him from among the dead ones. So we we can face death with hope on the one hand, but there's more to it than that, friends. Paul says that the kind of power is the kind of power that overcomes death. It does what Aslan did. Remember this in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? 
Some of you remember the words. What, what, what you didn't understand was the deep magic from before the dawn of time. That if somebody comes, a willing sacrifice who had committed no treachery, was killed in a traitor's stead, the table will be broken, it says. And what will happen? Death itself will start to work backwards. Do you remember those words? What, what does that mean? That's C.S. Lewis. It's not the Bible. What is it? What's he getting at? He's saying death has started to work backward. What's the backward of death? Life. Things springing to life. And Christ, he says, has come to life. And the power that did that is the power at work in you. You have already tasted this, dear Christian friend, even if you've forgotten that this is what has happened to you spiritually. Because the power that gave Jesus life in his death has already given you spiritual life in your spiritual death while you yet wait for resurrection life in your physical body and its death. That power is already at work in you, not just to give you hope, though, but to give you help as you live. When we get there this spring, Lord willing, we're going to flip over to chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians, which is all about what do we now do in light of what God has graciously done? What do we do? And you could turn almost anywhere randomly, and it would tell you, here's what you do. Take Ephesians 4, verse 17 and following. I won't read it all, but he says, you, Christians, should no longer walk as you used to. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. You were taught in Christ. No, no, no. Put off your old self. And put on the new self created after the likeness of God. And then live a new kind of life. Now look. I know it's not clear what he means by all that. We'll, Lord willing, get there. In the spring. But whatever he is saying there. It's going to take the power of Christ at work in you. To do it. You don't just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You don't just say, well, what God did in Christ was great. We praise him and we worship him. And now I just got to go do the Christian life on my own. That is not it at all. Some of us, though, are frustrated with ourselves. I actually hope Christians are frustrated with themselves. You ought to be. You're not what you should be. Don't you look at your own life and say, isn't there a power that can subdue my tongue and restrain it? And isn't there a power that can subdue my anger so it doesn't break out? And isn't there a power that can subdue my my bitterness and my resentfulness? And isn't there a power that can subdue my lusts? Who will give me relief? How can I get any help when I know my own sins and continuing sins? The Bible is saying to you, there is power, resurrection power, Available to you, you who believe in Jesus. And we need to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened so that we understand it, know it, experience, and appropriate it, use it, lean on it. Because that's the first thing he wants you to see more clearly and experience more strongly. The second is this. God's power in Jesus over the demonic is God's power for you. Why do I say that? Verse 21, if you go back there, speaks of, verse 20, that Christ raised from the dead and seated 
at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above what? All rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. It seems clear from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, when Paul talks about spiritual war and battle and uses the same words rulers and authorities to describe the demonic forces, the the unseen spiritual beings that stand against us, that the power he's talking about here is the power that raised Jesus above all rank and file of fallen angelic creatures. And he's saying this so we will not fear. Now look, Paul took it for granted that his readers understood that there were these unseen spiritual forces at work in the world called angels and demons. And I know that many today are skeptical, maybe some in this room. Are there truly such beings? And I I think it's helpful to say we should avoid the extremes of being either highly skeptical or too highly sensitive. The Jews in Paul's day were split on this subject. The party of the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. They didn't believe in angels and demons, and they didn't believe in the life that everlasting or afterlife. The party of the Pharisees believed in all three of those things, resurrection, angelic and demonic spirits, and life after this life. So the Sadducees didn't, the Pharisees did believe, and Paul and Jesus come down and side with the Pharisees in that debate. But we live in a Western secular society that's unwilling to admit the existence of any kind of spiritual reality, so certainly not the existence of malevolent ones. We're a highly suspicious people denying their existence. But then there's other kinds of people, we, we call them in the West, primitive societies that see demons behind every trouble. And there are Christians who are too hypersensitive in this way. Christians who want to blame every bad thing that they do on the demonic. The devil made me do it. Instead of taking personal responsibility for our own obedience and owning up to our own disobedience flowing from our own sinful hearts. We just want to say, well, it's not my fault, it's, you know... The influence of something else, some people will say. Many of the early Ephesians would have had the same worldview that that Paul is writing them about. They wouldn't have doubted this at all because, as we know from the book of Acts, they had been drawn out of occult practices, magic arts. They had actually burned their books of incantations and things related to the worship of idols. and And they would have been extremely aware and perhaps... Fearful. They believe these things were real. How do we not live in fear of these things you can't even see? And Paul says you do not need to live in fear because the power God has towards you is the power that raised Jesus Christ and placed him over all, far above and over all these unseen spiritual beings. I I want to insert a word here and say it's good maybe at this point to remember that there are also Good, unseen spiritual beings called angels, unfallen angels. The Bible speaks of them in lots of places. There are thousands and thousands and myriads and myriads and ten thousands upon ten thousands of them that gather before the throne in Revelation 5 and actually worship God. And we worship God with the angels. 
We learn in Hebrews 1 verse 14 that God's angels are actually his messengers sent for the sake of those who are going to inherit salvation. They're actually sent to serve believers. You remember that it was angels that shut the mouth of the lion so that Daniel was not hurt. You remember that Jesus in the wilderness in temptation and deprivation at his lowest point was attended to by angels and comforted by them. We are not commanded in the Bible to worship angels. We're actually forbidden from doing that because there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But there are good angels. But there are also fallen angels called demons. Colossians 2 verse 15, Paul tells you that Christ triumphed over them upon the cross, putting them to open shame and disarmed them of their weapons of war. Their chief weapon, of course, is accusation. And they have no accusation against true believers because all that we deserve has fallen upon our Savior upon the cross. So they're disarmed. But it's clear that these are defeated enemies and yet they still exist and are fighting. If you believe the Bible, what should we do? Should we cower? Should we live in fear? Should we live in superstition? No. They cannot influence our lives in such a way that any of us who are in Christ would ever be lost forever. That cannot happen. It cannot happen because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to rescue us from the kingdom of darkness and bring us into the kingdom of light. It cannot happen because the spirit that is in us is the the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Christ. And as we saw in Ephesians 1, that spirit is a down payment guaranteeing our everlasting inheritance. You cannot be lost. And the power of Christ in being raised over them and placed over them keeps them at bay while he keeps us in his power. We do not need to live in fear, but we should not live in ignorance. Ephesians chapter 6 is absolutely clear on this. Chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, it says that we are in a spiritual world with unseen spiritual beings and we're in a battle. Our battle, he says, is not against flesh and blood, Not against people, but against spiritual forces of darkness in heavenly places. And what does it take then to fight in this battle? Ephesians 6, verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Because we are weak, but he is strong. We need his power to fight. And so Jesus will teach us to pray in that very famous prayer. Lord, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. We need to lean on Christ and his power. Now, if all this seems bizarre to you, and I recognize there may be some in this room that find this absolutely bizarre. There may be some in this room who are very young Christians and have just never seen this in the Bible before and, and you're 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 here and, and I want you to know that we're glad that you're here. I'd love to know what you think about these things. We want to hear from you. But we have come to believe these things because the Bible teaches them. It's not so hard to believe, actually. Why? We believe something far more amazing than that. We believe that there actually exists an unspe- unseen God who 
took flesh and became man and walked this earth and died on a cross and rose from the dead. And he has ascended into this unseen spiritual reality where he rules and reigns. And so young Christians surrounded by occult powers in Ephesus needed to know that the one who was in them was stronger than the one who was in the world. And all Christians need to know that we are secure. It will help you sleep at night in darkness to know Jesus is above all rank and file of the demonic. But there's a third and final thing he wants you to see, and that's this. It's God's power in Jesus for dominion is God's power for you. What do I mean by dominion? Look at verse 22. It says, he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Jesus is now Lord of every area of life. And I didn't just say that Jesus is Lord of every area of your life. You, a Christian, though he is. But there is no inch of this existence that he is not Lord over. What has he put under Jesus' feet? All things. Does that mean that there are some things that are out of God's control? No. All things are under his feet and he has been placed as head over all things. A guy named Abraham Kuyper said, there's not a square inch of the world that Christ does not claim with the words, this is mine. Do you believe that? Do you believe that that's true? Not just for Christians who are repenting and being saved by him, but it's also true of those who rebel. They are rebelling against his authority and he is in authority and Lord over them. You will sometimes hear people talk like this, however. You can have Jesus as your Savior, but you need to make him your Lord. Listen, Jesus is already Lord. We don't make him Lord of anything. He is the Lord. But whether you acknowledge his Lordship or not, it's not negotiable. And this is encouraging, and this is exciting, and this is empowering. I want you to think of, finish with those three things. It's encouraging, it's exciting, it's empowering. Why is it encouraging? It's encouraging for those who have come to know him by faith and repentance. He's head over the nations. He's head over kings. He's head over presidents. He's head over politicians for the church. I want to say to my brothers and sisters, don't get way to fear that the election of one man or a thousand means the destruction of God's church. And do not give way to the false hope that the election of one man or thousands means the building of God's church. Jesus is Lord of elections and politicians. He's Lord of all things, and he will build his church. That's enormously encouraging, but it's exciting too. It's exciting that Jesus is Lord over all right now for who? For the church, for you. We don't understand this at times. We say things like, you know, I really like to listen to Christian music. But what does that mean really? What are the saved notes in a song? What are the Christian notes in a piece of music? I, look, all music is God's music. There it is. I said it. Some of you want to ask me about that later. Whether it comes from the hand of a Christian or a non-Christian, Jesus is Lord over it all. I'm not saying it all honors him in the same ways. I'm not saying it's done by Christians with a happy heart who love Jesus. 
Matthew chapter 5 says, though, that God causes his reign to fall on the just and the unjust. It's the doctrine of common grace. God has dispensed gifts of wisdom and beauty and justice and insight on all his creatures, even those who are rebelling against him actively. Even people rejecting God are able to say true things about the world. I'm not saying they're converted, but God is Lord over them, and he often enables them to create beauty and wisdom and true things with great insight. And that's absolutely humbling for Christians. Non-Christians have something to teach Christians about a lot of things. And we honor God's truth wherever we find it when we embrace it, because all truth is God's truth. And the Christian is somebody who's learning to see the fingerprints and the handprints of God on all things. It's all for you, friends. It's exciting. Innovation, technology, iPods. It's for you, given by God for his church. That's exciting, but it's also thirdly empowering. The power that placed Jesus as head over all things is the power that's for you. And I can't think of anybody in this room who needs that more than husbands. If you go over to Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians 5 verse 22, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He had just said that, that the husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. We're not going to walk through all your questions, concerns, critiques of that, and we're not going to interact with the world's view of those things tonight. Lord willing, we'll do that when we get to that text. But it's fascinating that he says Jesus has been placed as head over the church, head over all things for the church, and that the husband has been made head of his wife. And how did Jesus express his headship? How did it manifest itself? He self-sacrificially denied himself and died for her well-being because he loved her. And we are called to imitate him in that. That's my point. A husband is called to imitate Christ in his marriage, and none of us does that well at all because we're self-centered. And the more mature you are as a Christian, the more you know that. And he says, remember the power to love your wife comes from God. Jesus is head over all and has made you head in your home. It made Christ's head over you. Lean on his power. I say to myself as I say to you. And so, friends, you know, that little, the children's hymn is correct. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak. But he is strong. That's true. And the power that worked in the man Christ Jesus is the power that is available to you. We should pray that we'd know it better. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we know that you humble the proud, that you exalt the humble. Teach us where we're proud and self-reliant. And I pray for our own good that you would cut us off at the knees, that we would bow the knee to King Jesus, that we would then find in him our all in all and your power made perfect in our weakness. Do this, we pray, for your glory and our good.
In Jesus' name, amen.